you're passionate about transforming retail operations and improving performance, plus you're accountable for key change projects and programs in your company, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the Retail Transformation Show with me, Oliver Banks. Hey there, and welcome to the Retail Transformation Show. I'm Oliver Banks, your host and your guide to successfully delivering your retail transformation. This is episode 120, and thanks for joining. Through the explosion of e-commerce and the advent of technology into all parts of our life and operation, data has become a huge topic for many retailers, but it's also provided a number of different headaches especially as we collectively learn what is data, how to deal with it, why should we deal with it, and the right and wrong ways of dealing with it. And data is a key enabler for many of the other big trends that we're seeing right now, whether it's machine learning or AI or many of the other advanced, intelligent ways of doing retail. But it can all get a little confusing, can't it? especially as you layer in all these different terminologies, some of which, by the way, I personally feel do get quite horribly misused, which further adds to the cloud of confusion. But to help us today, I'm really delighted to welcome a a superb guest, Ian Shepard. Now, Ian has been a CEO, a COO, and a CMO who's held a number of senior roles in some world-class retailer and consumer brands over the past 25 years, including Sky, Vodafone, Game Group and Odeon Cinemas. Ian's been in and around data for a huge amount of time, as you'll hear in the conversation, by the way. He's launched loyalty programs, built new digital revenue streams and turned declining market shares into huge growth opportunities all based on a keen, practical understanding of consumers and the power of data and insight. Nowadays, he is a non-executive director and advisor to a range of retail businesses and also technology businesses as well. So he's got this wealth of experience and a superb perspective on everything going on in the world of retail and data right now. And he's the author of two books. Back in 2019, he wrote Reinventing Retail, The New Rules That Drive Sales and Grow Profits, a super book. And towards the end of last year, 2020, he launched The Average Is Always Wrong, a real-world guide to putting data at the heart of your business. And Ian is acutely aware of the evolving and changing world that we live in. So he's a super guest and really helps to give a practical edge around this whole data conversation. Show notes from today's episode are at obandco.uk slash 120. That's obandco.uk slash 120. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Ian Shepherd. So I'm exceptionally delighted to welcome back one of our our favourite guests here on the Retail Transformation Show, Mr. Ian Shepherd. Ian, how are things? Ollie, I'm really well, really good, thank you. Lovely to be back. I bet you say that to all of your guests, of course, but uh, but it is is lovely to be back. I I note that it was 
I think September 2019 when we last talked together on the Retail Transformation Show, which is, I suppose we would call the before times now. (laughs) BC, as they say in the business. Well, we're here today to dive into a slightly different subject, but something that's really hot at the moment in the world of retail, something that is actually able to to open huge amount of doors and huge opportunities. And we're going to be diving into data and data science and lots of very clever things, really, to help celebrate your new book, The Average is Always Wrong, A Real World Guide to Putting Data at the Heart of Your Business which, by the way, is is a great book, and I thoroughly would encourage you to pick up a copy if you've not already done so. Congratulations to you, Ian, on this guide, which is uh, brilliant for people in in real businesses. Well, thanks so much, Ola. It's kind of you to say so. But let's dive right into this. You know, we've heard about data a huge amount in in retail. You know, we're talking about being data-driven all the time. Data science seems to be the new sexy thing. Everything is now AI powered. We're using machine learning to do this and that and everything else. But it all gets pretty confusing, doesn't it? Help us help us out. Help us understand the world of data a little more. Well, yeah, I mean, what a great place to start. And actually, that is um, uh, that sense that there is, on the one hand, something really, really important here, that there is a genuine piece of retail transformation to come from understanding the data in our businesses and, and, and using it better. But on the other hand, there is also, you know, there's so much terminology and so much hype and so many kind of thought pieces being written about it that sound bamboozling and complicated and, you know, for the average kind of retail <laughs> leader just seem a bit alien. Um, it, it's exactly that tension between the opportunity and the, and, and the complication, which led me to, to write the average is always wrong. Um, I'd, I had talked a bit about data and the importance of data centricity, even in Reinventing Retail, which is the book we were talking about way back in 2019. But it seemed really appropriate, so important, it seemed really ap- appropriate to, to amplify it, a, a, the topic a little bit and try to create a bit of a manifesto that was useful to people who understand data and analytics, of course, but on the other hand, was also kind of accessible to and useful to people actually running retail and hospitality and other consumer businesses. And, and, and so the demystification that you're kind of talking about, getting behind the terminology is a really important part of that. What's fascinating, I think, when you get under the skin of it is that so much of what is described in so many complicated words is actually relatively straightforward. And so what I often do with people is just use a very practical example. So, you know, we have a whole bunch of customers, let's say in our business, whatever type of business you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it would be useful to know which of those, for example, are at the highest risk of defaulting on a on a future payment of becoming bad debtors or, you know, becoming some kind of financial risk. Yep. And so we ask ourselves the question, can we predict that in some way? And if you think about just in straightforward common sense language, how would you go about doing that? Well, it seems pretty obvious that what you would do is you take a whole bunch of historical data um, about customers, including the answer to the question. Yep. So that historical data will, t- will include the information about some of those customers did default on a payment, did become bad debtors, and others didn't. You have the answer for that set of customers already, but you also have a whole bunch of other bits of information yep. about those customers. You know, you know what products they buy from you, you know some demographic information, whatever else it is that you have in your business. And so the, the exam question, in a way, is 
which of those bits of other information or which combination of those other bits of information most successfully allows us to sort this historical data into the customers who defaulted and the customers who didn't. We'll try all sorts of different combinations and we'll figure out the, the, the combination of bits of data that help us to determine based on that historical data, the bad debtors from the, from the good payers. Mm. And when we've done that, we've got the best model we possibly can. We're going, to, we're going to make an assumption. We're going to assume that the future is a bit like the past in that sense. And so we're going to assume that when a new customer comes along or a new piece of data comes to light, that we can use those relationships to make future predictions as well. And we're going to put that model into production. And there's a whole process around that. We'll keep an eye on it and, and, and maybe iterate it over time. But fundamentally, that's the exercise that we're going to do. And, and when I describe it like that, most people think, yeah, that makes complete sense, right? I get that. It's, it's a very common sense approach to how you might try to predict something based on past information. Yep. Well, what we've just done is machine learning. If you do it on a computer, it's machine learning. If you do it on a big computer, you can probably call it AI and you start talking about neural networking. And these are all, frankly, just mathematical techniques and computer programming techniques to do what I've just described. I talk a lot about how do you turn data into, into cash. So much of what we're trying to do is, is as straightforward as that, done in a complex way, done with very, very large amounts of data, done with thousands and thousands of potential variables in millions and millions of potential combinations, but really fundamentally as simple as just trying to sort historical data into, into a number of different piles. Yeah. And so you know that, that's the way I encourage people to, to think about it because – once you get comfortable with an example like that, anyone in any retail business who's listening to this can immediately start thinking about other applications. Well, actually, that's true. Maybe that bad debt thing's not so relevant to my business, but actually, you know, if I could do that for the stock that's held in my stores, if I could do that for you know, the impact of lead times on sales volumes, if I could do it for the return on investment I get on different marketing campaigns, there's all sorts of bits of data out there in my business where if I could separate the good from the bad or the strong from the weak using other variables, that would be a really, really useful thing to know. Yeah. And so and so that's the way I think that, you know, management teams can start to get really, really excited about unlocking the power of data. And it's about making it accessible, right? In that example, you could actually follow it through and say, I can understand why I would look at it in this way and use these different elements. And it's just taking that exact same logic that you would do to work it out for one customer or one instance. And then, as you say, you know, using the power of computing to multiply it up to include, you know, all of the data sets or continuously run and so on. That's the real power of it. I think it is. And it's why, incidentally, the book is called The Average is Always Wrong. Because one of the drivers really for writing the book is that I, I've seen too many businesses who are maybe a bit less comfortable with all this data science stuff look at very, what I would characterize as very cursory summary statistics, and then make really big decisions about, you know, about their business based on those summary statistics. And so mm. the example I always use in the, in the book is, you know, some, somebody in a presentation says our average customer visits us 2.3 times a month. And, and that's a very accessible number. You know, I, I now as a business leader, I'm thinking, okay, so that's a bit less than once a week. I sort of understand the dynamic of that. I wonder if we could get it to be 2.4 or 2.5 times a month instead, because that would be revenue growth. So, so already I'm into a conversation that is, presupposes this kind of slightly less than once a week customer and, and, and is thinking about that, that person and their journey through my business. Mm. And yet actually, 
2.3 times a month on average might mean that almost all your customers do visit you between two and three times a month. That's perfectly possible. But it might also mean that you've got a very small number of customers who come every day and a much larger number of customers who come only once a month. Uh, that could still mm. that could generate the same 2.3 average figure. And yet the strategy conversation that that stems from that is completely different because now I recognize I've got two different customer segments and I want to understand a bit more about that and a bit more about what's going on. And so, you know, it, it is almost always the case, I think, that the really interesting value in data is in the detail. Definitely. It's in what I, what I call the wiggly lines. It's the, the richness of what's going on underneath, you know, those kind of simple looking summary statistics. And, and the reason for making that point is that actually the most powerful data science technique that any business can deploy is just to look at the detailed numbers with their eyes. You know, before you get anywhere near data science and machine learning and building models and neural networks and all that, all that stuff, when somebody says our customers visit us 2.3 times a month, just ask to look at the scatter charts of the, of the actual raw data. Mm. Um, because if there are multiple customer segments behaving differently, you'll see it. Your, your eye is a very, very good segmentation tool. It will see differences. It will see patterns. And so, you know, long before we get to computers and technology, just understanding that the real value in many of the numbers in our business, uh, you know, is, is at the next level down from, from that summary average statistic, whether that's a, mm. a revenue generating number like customer visit frequency or whether it's, you know, I've, I've been in presentations where somebody says, you know, we're holding three and a half weeks of stock in our business. And you think, well, I might, I, might be, I might be quite happy with three and a half weeks of stock in our business. But if it's actually for most of our products in most of our stores, it's two weeks of stock. But there's a little pocket over here in the corner of one particular type of product or one particular region where we're holding 12 weeks of stock. Yep. I'm going to want to do something about that because in a, in a very practical sense, that 12-week stock holding is tying up cash. And so this comes back to my point about turning data into cash is that when you get into the granularity and you find those little pockets of unusual behavior. That's where the revenue growth, the cost reduction, the cash flow improvements come from that make data into a really kind of useful thing for your business. Definitely. The devil is in the detail, as they say. And I suppose we tend to go towards averages for a, for a couple of reasons. Uh, interested to hear your thoughts on this. One feels like it's a simple way of saying it, you know, talking about your stock holding, it gets a more complicated way of saying, well, in 80% of our stores, we've got this, and 10% of our stores, we've got that, and another 10% we've got that. That gets a bit more complicated. Whereas if you can say, on average, we've got 3.5 weeks, you go, okay, I understand that. So it feels like that's one one instance. And then the other instance, I can't help getting out of my head the competitiveness of so many retailers that I know that would love to be able to you know, say, we've got customers visiting 2.3 let's see if we can get it to 2.4 times or 2.5 times visits having a metric that you can chart up and say i've shown an improvement those those two feels like why we turn to averages i think i think you're absolutely right i mean we we, we do love a league table in retail don't we and so <laughs> and so you know being able to kind of you know have a, a simple overall metric is is a powerful thing. I think that I think the spin that often changes the mindset in in retail teams on on that latter point, of course, is realizing that the best way to get two point three up to two point four or two point five is to find the pockets of difference, is to find the pockets of customers who are behaving very differently and do something about that. To find mm. the customers who are visiting very very frequently and think, I wonder how we could recruit more of those. 
or to find the customers who are visiting very infrequently and think, you know, what are we, what are we getting wrong for that customer and how can we fix it? And so, yeah, actually I'm a big fan of the, uh, I like a league table as much as the next person, but actually often the way to make the most tangible difference to the number is, is by getting into the the next level down. And I I think to your, to your other point about, you know, it's more complex when you start looking at the more complex numbers, it, it definitely can be. And I think here is the role, really powerful role for the data scientists, for the analysts, for the finance department, often in many retail businesses to say, you know, actually your challenge is to expose that complexity so that business leaders can make decisions based on it, but without it being bamboozling, you know, the, the plenty of people in retail and hospitality will be sitting there thinking, you know, once we start getting into murky territories of statistical significance and variances and you know that's all you know that gives me sort of nightmares from school or or college and I don't want to go there so so actually you know one of the things I see happen a lot is that very very clever analytical people either in a business or potentially consultants around a business enjoy the complexity but therefore end up presenting things in quite a scary way and uh, and it doesn't again I think Mm. I think it doesn't need to be like that sometimes the answer is you know, the answer is very straightforward. It's a very straightforward tail measure or a very straightforward scatter chart that just allows people to have a richer conversation. I definitely agree. And I think that's, for me, what becoming data-driven is is more about. It's actually how do you take that and dive into it so that you can understand it in better ways and thus take action from it. But we've heard all about becoming data-driven and every company should become a data company and this and that and everything else. But one of the things that I've really struggled to to find, and I have looked for this, and again, keen to hear your thoughts, Ian, why should we become a data company? Where's the data behind becoming data-driven? Yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, and you know, the funny thing is that the more sort of familiar with data and, and data science that I've become over my career, the more, I suppose, inherently skeptical I've become about, you know, if I actually saw a presentation saying, here's an analysis that shows that becoming data centric makes you more profitable. For example, I'm not sure I would believe it anyway, um, because the (laughs) the reality is there are, there are lots of very, very successful data centric retail businesses. You could create a graph that showed a positive relationship between data centricity and profitability very easily, but those businesses are often, they're often also pure plays. They're often also new entrants into markets. They're often very well-funded sort of venture capital-led businesses. And so there are a whole bunch of other factors there that, that you know, any data scientist worth their salt would say, Ouch, I'm, not, I'm not sure you've proved that correlation equals causality in, in, in that case. I think, that, I think the broader point for me for business leaders is that actually, in, in a sense, I think I challenge the frame of the question because I, I would not want a, a, a retail leadership team to decide that they wanted to become something called data centric because it was a good thing at that level it's almost like a sort of religious conversion isn't it okay yeah we'll, we'll go and do some data stuff mm. for me it's a much more rich question is where, where is money tied up or trapped in your business where are sales opportunities that your business is missing where are customer loyalty challenges that you could resolve and, and turn into real value for your shareholders and in trying to answer those questions about profit and cash and customer lifetime value, you will quickly realize that actually getting under the average, getting into the detail of the data is the right way to do that. And so 
you know, d- data and an, data analytics, machine learning, data centricity, all these terms, they're, they're not things you do for their own sake. They're things you do for a purpose. And our purpose in running a business is to build a big, successful, sustainable business for all of our stakeholders. And, and so really, that, that's the way to, to approach it. Don't believe that data centricity is of value, you know, without evidence. Just go, go and find opportunities to generate value in your business and you will very quickly be led to data centricity as a way of doing it. So it's yeah, really finding out what's that exam question as you as you referred to earlier, that I want to know about the lost sales opportunities or this or that and everything else. And that I guess stops it being a, a flavor of the month. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> From, you know, well, the boss has read an article on Harvard Business Review <laughs> wants to do this now. Okay. Heaven, heaven, <laughs> heaven forbid. <laughs> no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, that, that begins to guide us into thinking about what are some of the challenges or the limitations of the watchouts, which we've, we've touched on earlier. Where do you see retailers or other businesses as well falling over more often than not, Ian? I think that, you know, you, you, the retail transformation show, you, you recently had an episode about, about predictive modeling. And I think you, you, you characterized, I think, some of the risks and, and dangers really, really well in that episode as well. Mm. For me, the, the dangers of building a predictive model, of building a data model are kind of implied in the way I, you know, the sort of English language where I described the, 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 the challenge of predicting our bad debtors from our, our, our good payers um, right at the beginning of, the, of, of this episode, which is that I said, we're going to use historical data where we know the answer, we're going to build the model, and then we're going to assume that that historical relationship still holds, and we're going to use it to predict the future. And so, of course, there, there is risk number one, which, yep. is that, which is that, you know, we're assuming that the past will accurately predict the future. And in many cases, it will. Uh, and that is that's exactly how predictive modeling works. But you you obviously have to have a wider eye on whether there are bigger changes in the world that will alter those relationships. So you made the point in the predictive modeling episode yeah. that no, no one would have predicted, you know, lockdowns and and the impact of that on on retail businesses. And that's absolutely right because it's a discontinuity from the past. But there may be there are many other potential discontinuities as well. So you might have changed your your sales strategy, you might have changed. If you're selling a product through stores, you might have started selling through different stores or, or started selling other things alongside the products that your model is looking at. And all of those things can kind of change the, the nature. So you just got to be very careful about um, assuming that the past always will predict the future. I think the phrase you've used before about, you know, the model will be wrong, but it might be useful. Yep. Um, absolutely applies there, which is that, you know, you should take the relationships, but I'm, I'm not sure, you know, that I would kind of bet my mortgage on many predictive models, you using them to tell you something, but you've got to be thoughtful about what they're telling you. I, I think another thing, which, you know, I, I touched on a couple of minutes ago, which is people often do with models is, is to assume that correlation is the same as causality. Yes. So, so that there, there, there may very well be a relationship between one thing in, the model and the behavior that you're trying to model. And that can be helpful and it can be useful for building future predictions, but it doesn't necessarily imply that one thing causes the other. There's quite a fun example where, you know, there's a very high correlation between height and wealth, for example, but that's usually, that's because little kids don't have much money. (laughs) So actually the correlation between both height and wealth is with age. And so they're, they're, you know, you've got two variables that are correlated with a third variable, and yet it looks like they move together. And what the, what life is full of those, those kind of relationships. So again, you've got, to be, you've got to be very careful about that. Let's just touch on that point and dive into it, because 
as you think about you know, all of the different data sources in a, in a retail business, how do you begin to discover whether a correlation is linked to a causality or not? You could pick out lo- loads of different relationships that may or may not be linked, and you don't know whether there is something else at play. How do you demystify that? How do you how do you uncover it? Yeah, absolutely. And and, and this is this is where for the business leaders listening to this episode, this this becomes a, an example of where you know you need to choose your your data scientists or the you know external consultants and advisors who are helping you with data very very carefully because that's quite a challenging thing to address um, but it's a very very important thing to address so i'll give you a very tangible example from so relatively recently i was talking to a retailer about um, the relationship between their marketing spend and their sales yep very straightforward classical thing to be interested in and they had done a load of you know what the data scientists would call econometric modeling of of that so in other words you put into the model how much you spend on marketing and a whole bunch of other things about you know the weather and the time of year and the day of the week and all the rest of it and you build a model and the model comes out and says oh yeah there's a relationship there if we spend more on marketing we make more in sales so you can go and make some decisions on the back of that and i challenged them a little bit by saying yeah but the problem with that is that you only ever do marketing at christmas and people only ever buy your product at Christmas. So actually, I'm not sure that there's a relationship between marketing and sales volumes as much as there's a relationship between both of those things and the existence of Christmas. Mm. How do you know? And that prompted a little bit of iteration, actually, a little bit of discussion toing and froing. But what was interesting was it turned out that, as luck would have it, in their data set, they had, they had a couple of Christmas periods where they hadn't spent very much on marketing for one reason or another. And therefore, they were able to say, well, yeah, but actually, we can unpick that relationship. And we can see that when we had, yes, we had Christmas, but we didn't have the marketing spend, our sales didn't rise by as much. So in other words, that there were, you know, these two things were not perfectly correlated with each other. And by looking at the imperfections of the correlation, we can unpick some of the relationships. And I, I, I don't think even that exchange necessarily got to kind of you know the scientific proof of the relationship between marketing spend and sales volume for that business but it certainly went some way towards addressing my concern that that actually what they were seeing was just you know a pattern in consumer spending and so there are ways of doing it but i think this is the realm of this is the realm of the statistician and your question is a good watch out really important that you don't just look at some of those cursory relationships and think well that's bound to be causal because sometimes it might not be Mm. i really like how you you lay it out in in your book, in the average is always wrong. The example you use is around umbrellas and rain, yes. <laughs> right? And actually, is there a reversal relationship there, or whether you know that there's something else going on, a bit like you've described with age, or whether it's just a load of nonsense, frankly, as well? <laughs> yes, yes. There's there's some fantastic examples online of of, and, and I reference a couple in the in the book of of completely spurious correlations um, that you can find. Many things, if you model them over a very long period of time, for example, you know, relationships between, I don't know, educational outcomes and wealth or all sorts of things that, that might be out there in the world. Actually, when you look at them on a long period of time, all you're really observing is that populations have risen. And so, you know, there, there are all sorts of kind of factors that can skew things. Mm. I think there's another danger, I think, that, you know, I would highlight in, in building predictive models. And I don't want to overemphasize the dangers, right? Because there's a huge amount of value in building these models, but it, there are some things to be careful about. 
and, and, and a, a particularly kind of sharp example of this correlation causality thing comes when you build a model and then destroy it yourself. And so I, I, I give the example in the, in the book of a, uh, a big retailer that built a model that said when, when, we, when a new customer comes to us, it was, this was an online customer, when a new customer comes to us, can we tell whether they're going to be a high value customer in the long term? based on the first basket of goods that they buy from us. And you can see why you'd ask the question, right? Because if you could, then yeah. you might treat them differently or give them VIP service or whatever. So can we, and it turned out by analyzing the basket uh, of goods that they could. So it turned out that customers who arrived and bought, and, and I was, I'm was i very coy in the book about what the products are because it's a dead giveaway to who the retailer is. But, yep. <laughs> um, but, but you know, the customer who came in and bought products A and B out of all of the hundreds of products that you sell, if they buy both A and B, they're very, very likely to become a high-value customer. And that, that model was robust, was kind of statistically valid, and potentially really helpful for the business. Unfortunately, the very next thing the business did on the back of that conclusion was to give all new customers who arrived on the site discount coupons for products A and B. <laughs> and this is a classic to the point you made about umbrellas and rain, where sometimes the causality is the other way around. It, you know, a customer arriving and buying products A and B was revealing something about themselves, but it wasn't the fact that they bought A and B that made them a high value customer. It was just a clue. Mm. And so as soon as they started to actively promote the purchase of products A and B, they destroyed the clue, right? Because suddenly there's all these potentially low value customers are coming in and going, oh, I'll, I'll take the discount voucher. I'll, I'll buy this I'll have products. a deal, yeah. And so a relationship which in the historical data had been pretty useful suddenly became valueless because of kind of what they did. So just, just again, an interesting sort of way of thinking about, you know, you've got, you've got to be careful to be really clear about what you think is drive, which thing is driving the other. Yes, definitely. Definitely. There's some really good watch outs. But like you say, let's be perfectly clear to everyone. We're both in support of of using data more intelligently in your business. Just just to clarify, we don't want to uh, put well, the damper down. I, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, and actually, I, I think to the point you touched on in the introduction, I think, uh, you know, wh why are we in favor of that? Again, it, I, I don't think it's religious fervor about the, the you know, data centricity as a goal in its own right. It's because there's so much value tied up in it. There are so many decisions made every day in most retailers up and down the country about what to buy, about which products to put into which stores, about pricing, about promotional strategy, about staff rostering, about warehouse management, about all sorts of things. Just goes on and on, doesn't it? So many decisions where really, if we're, if we're brutally, brutally honest with ourselves and look under the bonnet, we're doing that decision making based on some historical knowledge, some experience and a, and a spreadsheet. But where a more forensic kind of data centric perspective just might unlock bits of value that we're leaving on the table. And, you know, we're competing, those of us in physical or traditional retail businesses with pure play new entrants that will do that automatically, you know, who, the businesses that are effectively data science businesses that happen to sell something. And so they will, they will ask those data questions of every corner of their business. And so if we carry on doing it with, you know, last year's spreadsheet updated for this year's numbers, we're, we're missing out on value. And so that, that, that's why, I mean, not, notwithstanding the fact that data science isn't perfect, it, it, is, it is, you know, an enormous potential opportunity for retailers as they transform themselves. And it's a journey, right? You know, don't don't expect to become the top level leading data company in in just a moment. But you can start to make 
and I call it more intelligent decisions quite intentionally, you can start to use that data to tackle some of the questions that you've got in your business that you really want to know the answer to and that perhaps you've, you know, you may have been relying on an experience or we've done this before and this what happened. All of those sort of different examples that, again, I've I've certainly come across in my time working with different retailers or, or previously when I was at Tesco as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So there's a huge opportunity here with data. We've got to be careful, as we've discussed, and without without giving too many clues. I mean, you, you do dive into this next question for a whole part of your book. So if people are interested, then do go and get a copy of The Average is Always Wrong by Ian Shepard. But Ian, what should someone do next other than buy the book, obviously? <laughs> well, I was going to say, I, I certainly endorse the message that everyone should go out and buy the book. But I think, yeah, look, I think t- the two things to think about, and, and yes, there's lots to say about them, but, but briefly, I think the two things to think about as a business that's thinking about data centricity is first of all, to think about data. So to think about what do we know about our business? What data flows do we have? What do we not know? Mm. But really through the lens, as I've said throughout this, of where might there be profit opportunities or cash tied up in our business, efficiency opportunities that we could unlock if we only knew a little bit more than we do now. And so in the book, I, I, I describe a kind of circular audit process where there's, a, you know, you start the two questions you can ask yourself are, what data do I have and what could I do with it is one question. And then the second question is, where are the big profit and cash flow levers in my business? And how might I be able to improve them? So you can think of them as the sort of supply and demand of data centricity. And I think going on that journey as a management team will mean that instead of just, hey, we should hire some data scientists to do some data stuff. And believe me, I've, I've met retail teams that have done more or less something as, as, as broad as that. Instead of that, you end up starting your journey with a much more forensic set of questions that you want the answer to, and that you're much more likely to succeed. Mm. I think if you're just trying to answer one thing, one or two things, then if you just if you if you say I'm going to go on a whole data journey all at once. So so the first point I think is to really think about data and the questions that data might enable you to answer. And I think the second thing, which I, I amplify quite a lot in the book because it's in the real world so tremendously important, is that you need to make you need to go on a journey as a management team. So pretty much the way we discussed earlier on, mm. data topics and sort of data analysis can be pretty scary for a management team, for a leadership team who, you know, may not have done math since they were at school, may not be massively comfortable with this. And 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 so, you know, you'll hear what you get when you start talking about, oh, we've built this really clever model that predicts, for example, which SKUs we should have in which stores, you know, at which points in the year. Yep. Somebody around the table is going to say, well, you know what, that that's that's all very interesting, but there's no substitute for experience and instinct and knowledge. And, you know, the buyer is going to say, oh, yeah, that's buying models great, but there's no substitute for my supplier relationships and for the human touch. And of course, all of those things, by the way, are true, but they're also in some senses aspects of denial that, that you know, this stuff is scary. And I, I, I'd really rather, you know, as a business, we carried on doing it the way we've always done it. And that is that can be incredibly toxic for a business because it can thwart the return on the investment in data analytics. And I've literally worked with businesses who've invested millions in data centricity and end up saying, I don't think it's made any difference to the business. And the reason it hasn't made any difference to the business is because the powerful groups around the business, the marketing department, the buying department, the retail operations team 
have in some way or other mm. decided that that data analytics stuff is not really about them. It's a, it's a thing that we'll, you know, we'll have a really interesting presentation at the board meeting about what data tells us, but it's not really going to change how I run the stores or which products we buy. And so that kind of denial piece is something you need to be very, very attentive to as a, as a, as a management team. And so the, 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 those companies that have made a really, really good data centricity journey tend to be the ones where they've had a, just a really open, very explicit conversation across the management team saying, gosh, yes, this is scary. And actually, you know, it is taking us into territory that we've not been to before. But let's do that together. Let's do it openly. Um, and let's make it a part of, you know, the kind of, you know, the next management away day we do instead of sitting in some terrible hotel drinking coffee, we'll, we'll go and have somebody teach us a bit about data and a bit, a bit about analytics and just explore what a neural network is or explore what some really good case studies from business that's already doing this stuff well. So actually go on a learning journey together. And, and, and that is, you know, yeah, you're right. The whole third part of the average is always wrong is really about business change, as is so often the case. It's the, it's the human psychological aspects of business change, which end up being so important to, to making everything else pay. Yeah, and huge sort of cultural shifts as well, you know, that start with that openness to sit around the table and say, let's see what's going on, rather than let's try and prove our point with the numbers to make ourselves feel good, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely right. <laughs> but Ian, this has been a hugely insightful conversation. I've, I've loved it and uh, loved, loved the book as well. How can people find out more? Well, I think, you know, the, the good news, I mean, obviously, buy the book is the, is the answer that my publisher would want me to say. But the good news here is, I think that there are loads of case studies, there are loads of great companies out there doing good stuff and actually talking about it. So, so I think that I think there's, I think there's lots of opportunities to go to the next level. I've seen some really, really fascinating examples where a company in one sector has reached out to a company in a completely different sector that's really good at, for example, data centricity. And found them to be incredibly welcoming and that, that you know, they've, they've kind of shared lots of stuff or they've had a joint kind of management session or whatever. So I think where there's a will, there's definitely a way. And, and so the key thing for management teams is to, is to establish the will, first of all, is to understand where the value is for them, what, what questions they're trying to get answers to, uh, and then go out and, you know, just ask themselves who, who's doing that already and what can we, how are they doing it and what can we learn? That's a brilliant opportunity for people to think about slightly think outside the box, so to speak, (laughs) and go and learn from other industries as well. One final question I have to ask you, what's your favorite effective use case of data, Ian? Oh, gosh, that really is a tough one. I I, I was lucky enough to to start my career outside of retail in subscription businesses in pay television and mobile. And Mm. actually, those are sectors where those businesses have a lot of data and they have a huge kind of incentive to use it well. A lot of the data science stuff that we talk about now tended to start there 20 or 30 years ago. And I was lucky enough to work with lots of bright people doing interesting things there. And Right at the forefront. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And, 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 and so, you know, some of the, the models there tr- trying to predict, you know, future churn, the bad debt model that I used as an example, I've seen that done, you know, incredibly well. I've seen some very fun examples where in in the mobile sector, for example, as we were introducing a new phone, you know, we did some very interesting modeling to try and answer the question, you know, who of the customers on our database are most likely to be influencers? Mm. You know, if we look at our data and say who, who, when they change their mobile phone, all their friends change their mobile phones as well. And therefore, they're clearly a kind of thought leader or an early adopter or an influencer. And, you know, trying to identify those people so we could market directly to them was a, was a, actually turned out to be a very, very successful exercise. So, wow. 
there are tons of fantastic examples out there and even in you know in our own sector in retail and in the hospitality sector i think there are some people doing doing really terrific stuff often the models that i find most compelling are the are the least sexy ones they're the ones they're not the ones focused on sales and marketing they're the ones focused on you know warehouse management or stock management or you know there's a story i use in the book of a company that built a very very clever data science model in order to manage their customer contact center better by prioritizing urgent calls and separating them mm. from less urgent calls things like that can be can be just totally transformative and they're often really really good case studies to learn from yeah but not always perhaps the the sexy ideas that you might alternatively hear i think there's huge opportunities in looking through the back end elements and you know opt- optimizing the business as well totally agree totally agree ian this has been fantastic thank you so much for sharing your experience and all of your insights also the book as well, which again, if you didn't catch it, it's called The Average is Always Wrong. Thanks for having me, Ollie. It's always, it's always great to uh, to talk. I think, you know, data is a topic you've turned to a couple of times already, and I'm sure you'll come back to. So, so you know, the, I guess the other important lesson for everybody in how to become more data centric is keep listening to the Retail Transformation Show. That's very kind of you, Ian. And uh, I, I totally agree with you, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thanks so much, Ian. It's been a real blast. And I look forward to welcoming you onto the show again in the future at some stage. I'll look forward to it. Thanks very much. So there we go. Ian Shepherd there on the Retail Transformation Show. And if you enjoyed this episode with Ian, then definitely go back and check out episode 45 and 46, where we were exploring his previous book, Reinventing Retail. And that was just a brilliant conversation. And you may want to check out episode 58 as well, where he was sharing some career tips. There were some really key lessons, though, in today's conversation. For me, it was thinking about what's the question that you're trying to answer. I think that forms a huge piece for how you go about using data. If you take a great big data lake, a source of all of your data, and you just say, tell me something interesting, it gets hard. Whereas if you say, give me a sales opportunity or find a way to improve a particular KPI in a particular scenario or a particular niche, then suddenly you know where you can go looking and you can actually go and find the specific data that is going to prove it rather than just relying on, frankly, a little bit of luck to uh, find something interesting for you. Ian also mentioned the previous episode, episode 119, which was about how to do predictive modeling, which is a lovely little partner episode to this episode, with that caveat, of course, of all models are wrong, but some may be useful. Check out the show notes page today at obandco.uk slash 120, where you can find all of the links from today. And also sign up for the Retail Transformation Briefing, a weekly email which guides you through the key headlines from the world of retail transformation and keeps you on the front foot by spotting trends exactly as they happen. So thanks for tuning in today. Do hit subscribe and remember, tell your friends, your colleagues and your team about the Retail Transformation Show. I'm sure they'd love to tune in too. Bye for now.